Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and also the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 through 31. You can follow along on the screen or with the Bibles around your seats. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone as we continue to worship together. Uh, My name is David, and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa Church. Uh, For those of you who have been around for the last year and a half, you have heard this at least 20 times by now. But let me remind you, that next year my family and I will be moving to the South Shore area of Massachusetts to plant a church. And we are super excited about this, but also um, we're nervous and we're scared. And just wanna ask for you all to, to pray for us in that. As many of you know, last week we're actually up in Massachusetts. We're meeting with pastors and leaders, some of these meetings that we would have loved to have had Last year were postponed, but we were finally able to get up there and meet with pastors, meet with churches, and this was such an encouraging time for us. Uh, Being up there and talking to different people around Boston and around Plymouth, where we'll be, uh, it reminded me of the many, many challenges that we're going to face. I was talking to one gentleman about church planting, and he is a successful uh, businessman and I'm talking about what we believe God has called us to do here. And his response was very interesting. His response essentially was, why are you trying to establish a church here when there's really no, there's no kind of market for that thing here? He's basically saying, why, why are you trying to sell something, in his mind, why are you trying to sell something that no one wants to buy? And as he was sharing that with me, I'm thinking, Thank you, Lord, for continuing to affirm why we need to be here. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that conversation, although I, I say that with a bit of uh, fear and trepidation at what I know we're, we're going into. But I want to thank all of you who are praying for this trip. Uh, God answered many of our prayers in ways that we didn't expect, which is typically how he does things. Um, we have some really important decisions that we have to make as a family in the next couple of weeks, so Please pray for us. Pray that the Lord would give us wisdom as we make those decisions. 
Well, I am really excited to deliver our last message this morning in our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit. So why don't we pray together, and then we will look at God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no one like you on heaven or on earth. There is no person, there is no entity that can compare to you. God, we thank you for the steadfast love that you show towards us. We thank you for the undeserved mercy that you show towards us. On our own merit, God, we have absolutely no right to approach you. Father, we acknowledge our our brokenness. We acknowledge our sinful hearts. God, we ask this morning that you would turn our hearts towards you. Turn our affections towards you. Our tendency is to run. Our tendency is to hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. But God, thank you that you are always pursuing your children. Thank you that you have given your sheep your people, the ability to hear your voice. God, we ask that you would help us to follow you as we hear your voice. You're the good shepherd, Lord Jesus. We pray, we ask that you would lead us. God, we echo the very prayer of Jesus this morning and ask that you would unify us, that you would make us one. Father, bring unity to your church, not not uniformity, Not doctrinal compromise, not a fake sense of togetherness, but Father, please bring unity. May the love that we have for one another in this local church, may it be a powerful witness for the gospel. Lord, please destroy our pride. Destroy our pride and make us humble. God, I want to pray specifically for all the people here who are struggling with anxiety and depression. God, I pray that you would Remind us that we're not any less of a Christian because we're affected by this. God, I pray that everyone who wrestled, wrestles with this would feel your presence in their lives. Help us to feel your presence in that way this morning. Father, we desire to be a church where people can be open and honest about their struggles. God, we pray that in our, our corporate gatherings and in our community groups and in our, our shared meals together in the, the life of our church that confession, repentance, forgiveness, and healing would happen. Oh, Jesus, we pray for that. Now, we pray that people uh, we know and love would come to know Jesus as their Savior. We ask, God, that you would give us the joy of seeing new believers baptized into the faith. Give us the joy of discipling new Christians. God, this church has many people who have been walking with you for a long time. God, I ask that you would bring people here who want to be discipled. As we look at your word together this morning, Lord, I I pray that we would listen uh, and read, not simply to gain knowledge and insight. I pray that you would bring this. But God, I pray that your spirit would convict us where real life change is needed. Show us the areas of our lives where we are living outside of your holy will. Where it's needed, God, I pray that you would give us fresh, holy desires for you. God, give us a greater love for you, a greater love for Christ, a greater love for the gospel, for those who are lost. Lord, I desperately need your help today. 
God, I pray that your spirit would apply things to people's hearts. God, I can't do it. I pray that you would do it. We want to be changed by you. I pray that you would do that this morning. That you do that for your glory and for our joy. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So what exactly is self-control? Does self-control even really matter? Human beings across the world and at different time periods have had an interesting relationship with the idea of self-control. Self-control is something that most people seem to admire, but at the same time, they have a, a difficult time exhibiting it. If you wanna see an example of the complete opposite of self-control, open a bag of Doritos and put it in front of me and I will quickly show you what self-control does not look like. The Stoic philosophers, people like Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, they viewed self-control as essential to becoming a free and autonomous person. To lack self-control in their view was to be a slave to the emotions. And self-control was the means to, to break free from being a slave to emotions and feelings. Mahatma Gandhi taught that in order for us to understand our true self, in order for us to, to understand God, that could only come through a strict sense of self-control. There's others that have viewed self-control in the complete opposite way. Author and poet Oscar Wilde said that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. In other words, don't worry about self-control. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about controlling your desires and your emotions and your feelings. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. And if you know anything about Oscar Wilde, he certainly lived his life that way. There's all kind of views, there's all kind of opinions, there's all kind of philosophies on what self-control is. Trust me, you can go on a YouTube vortex and spend hours just watching videos on what self-control is. But as Christians, we are ultimately concerned with what the Bible has to say. What does the Bible have to say about self-control? As we've heard over and over as our scripture passage has been read over these last few weeks, Paul concludes his description of the fruit of the Spirit with the word self-control. So we need to have some understanding of what Paul is talking about here. Self-control is clearly significant when it comes to the Christian life. So how should we understand this? Perhaps more importantly, how can we be people who exhibit self-control in our lives? One of the things we've really been trying to do in this series is show you that the fruit of the Spirit, it finds its root in the very character of God himself. And the reason for this, and please, please hear me, church, on this. The reason we're trying to show you this is not simply to inform your intellect, but it's to stir your heart, to stir your affections. Remember that the true marker of growth as a Christian is not biblical or theological knowledge. Those things help us grow. Those things are, are good things. We should strive for those things, but in themselves, intellect and knowledge is not the marker of growth. We shouldn't judge our maturity by how quickly we can find a passage of scripture 
or um, how fast we can refer to a, a Martin Luther quote. We should be able to find things in the Bible. And we all love a good Martin Luther quote. If, you, if you're not familiar with him, go read some of the stuff he said. You'll have a good laugh and be informed. But ultimately, we should be looking for the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in our lives as a sign of Christian maturity. We should be asking others if they're seeing the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our lives. And throughout this series, we've been praying, we've been trusting that the Holy Spirit will cultivate this fruit in our lives as we fix our gaze on the character of God. There's also a phrase that you've heard every single week that we've been in the series, and that's at the end of verse 23. That's where Paul writes, against, he lists all the fruits of the Spirit, then he says, against such things, there is no law. And I'm gonna to try to explain for you why Paul says that right there on, or at the end, why that's important and why that matters in the overall flow of Galatians. So brothers and sisters, as we get ready to really dive in here, a couple of important things I just wanna stress again. The fruit of the Spirit is not something that we produce in our own strength. The fruit of the Spirit is a product of the Spirit's work. It's so crucial that we remember this. We don't produce the fruit of the Spirit simply by trying harder. The fruit of the Spirit is not produced solely by living a more disciplined and orderly life. We cannot produce the fruit, but that doesn't mean we are without responsibility. We cannot produce the fruit, but that does not mean we are without responsibility. Passivity or just sort of accepting whatever happens that will not lead to the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our lives. It won't lead to the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our life together as a church. And if you're a Christian, I know that you desire for the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in your life. You desire for it to be evident in your life individually and in our church's life together. And our active role and again, I want everyone to hear this. Our active role in this is to pray and ask and allow the Holy Spirit to produce this in us. We have an active role in this process. We just aren't the ones who are ultimately responsible. The Spirit has to do the work. Well, since we're talking about self-control and Paul lists it as an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, let me give you a quick definition for what I think Paul is talking about. When Paul uses the word for self-control in Galatians 5.23, I think he's describing an ability to keep one's passions or desires under control in a way that does not lead to sin. So someone who possesses self-control, they might feel anger inside, but that doesn't mean they go out and rage on somebody. They might feel jealousy towards someone. That's a real emotion that they feel, but they don't go out and talk bad behind somebody's back. So our working definition, it's important that we do this at the beginning so we're all on the same page. Our working definition of self-control is this. The ability to keep one's passions or desires under control so that we are not led into sin. Self-control in a biblical sense is the ability to keep one's passions or desires under control so that we are not led into sin. And again, I wanna preface or continue to emphasize this is all a work of the Spirit. Self-control, it keeps us from temptation. It keeps us from sin. It is not an ignoring of the emotions. To be self-controlled is not to ignore your emotions. In fact, someone who possesses self-control is very aware of what they're feeling. They're very aware of their emotions. They're just not 
controlled by them. If we lack self-control, we will succumb to our emotions, we will succumb to temptation, and we will be led into sin. So if we are sitting here this morning as people who love Jesus, who want to glorify him with our lives, who want to honor and worship him, then we want to be people who demonstrate self-control. Because in showing self-control, we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and we honor the Lord. When we exhibit self-control, when we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, we are glorifying God. That's why we want to possess self-control, because we want to bring glory to God. So how do we do this? I think we begin by looking at our brother, looking at our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read again the passage from Matthew that was read for our scripture reading. If you have your Bible open, flip over to Matthew 27, 27 to 31. I'd love for you to have it in front of you as we're reading it. Remember, this is is right before Jesus would go to the cross. Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes, his own clothes, and on him and led him away to crucify him. I don't know if you've thought about this before or not. I know I certainly hadn't before I really started preparing this sermon, but the crucifixion was arguably the greatest demonstration of self-control in the history of the world. The more we, we dwell and think about who it is that's being led away to be crucified, the more obvious this becomes for us. Many of you have heard everything that I'm I'm getting ready to say here in these next couple sentences, but really let this sink in as you think about the cross and the crucifixion. This Jesus was not just a man being made fun of and slandered. This isn't some Roman or Jewish criminal that's being mocked by these soldiers. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I love how the Nicene Creed from the fourth century describes Jesus. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. This is Jesus who's being mocked. This is Jesus who's being slandered. This is the same Jesus who Right before he was, or as he was getting arrested in the garden, he said, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Do you know who this is who's being mocked and slandered? Jesus could have, he could have ended the slander. He could have ended the embarrassment. He could have ended the physical pain that was getting ready to be inflicted on him. He could have stopped it all in a split second, but he didn't. He showed self-restraint. I would say he showed self-control. And Jesus, he showed self-control in this instance 
and in many other places throughout his ministry because he was fixed on something greater. He knew what his mission was. He knew the significance of the cross. He knew what was getting ready to happen. He knew why he had to do it, so he restrained himself. He showed self-control. Now, it would be a mistake for me to move on here without making sure everyone in this room here knows the significance of the cross. Friends, it was on that cross where redemption Redemption was secured for everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ as their savior. It was on the cross that sin and death were conquered. Christ's blood shed on the cross, it provides the perfect sacrifice for sin. And the cross, it brings eternal reconciliation between a holy God and sinful and rebellious people like you and like me. I don't think it's inaccurate or an overstatement to point out the link that exists between the self-control of our Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. Without Jesus showing self-control here, there is no cross. For the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross. He despised its shame and now he's seated at the right place, at the right hand of the throne of God. He showed self-control throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus did. I'm thinking when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan or when he was doubted and questioned by the disciples, when his authority was challenged by the Pharisees and by the scribes. In all these instances, Jesus showed self-control. But self-control was not the goal in and of itself. The goal ultimately was the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father was why Jesus demonstrated self-control. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. Self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, that isn't the main goal here. The glory of God is what matters. And when we pray, when we ask for the Spirit to help us to produce the fruit of the Spirit, we're asking for this so that God can be glorified. We have a much higher aim than simply having people compliment us that we're self-controlled or we're loving or we're gentle or we're joyful. The higher aim is that God will be glorified. We want God to be glorified by the way that we live our lives. One of my favorite examples of self-control, one that I've always been inspired by outside of scripture comes from Jackie Robinson. If you're a baseball fan, you certainly know the story of Jackie Robinson. And if you saw the movie 42 that came out a few years ago, you have an idea of what Jackie Robinson went through. But in case you're unfamiliar, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball when he started at first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Jackie Robinson endured horrific racism that is well-documented as he became the first African-American player in baseball. The self-control that that Robinson had to show in in not responding to the name-calling, not responding to the harassment, it is truly remarkable. What's not well known, however, is that Jackie Robinson was a Christian, as was Branch Rickey, the man who signed Jackie to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. There's no question that 
Jackie Robinson's Christian faith played a part in the self-control and the self-restraint that he was able to show. I'm very confident that, that Robinson was angry, that he was upset, that he was saddened and hurt by the vicious verbal and even physical attacks that were made against him. But he demonstrated self-control because he had a greater goal. He wanted other people who looked like him to have the same opportunity that he had. He wanted to do something significant for other, for other people. The life he lived uh, is really summed up well uh, in what is, is placed on his tombstone there. It says a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And Jackie Robinson, in demonstrating self-control, he, he had an impact on the life of others. And certainly that was part in part because of the self-control that he showed. Well, church, as we, as we start to think about some of the specific areas where self-control needs to be displayed in our day and age, I really want you to sort of have this in the, the front of your mind as we think about this. And that's this, this is important, this is important because God's glory is important. This matters because God's glory matters. God is glorified when we reflect his character to the world. Christ is honored when we live as ambassadors for him. And of course, all of this is only possible when we're filled with and relying on the Holy Spirit. Now there, I mean, we could be here forever talking about where self-control applies in all these different areas. It truly applies everywhere, which is why I think it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. But I want to give us just a couple of things to think about. A couple of things to think about this morning. So first, we demonstrate self-control with our tongues. We demonstrate self-control in what we say. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. It's a pretty significant, uh, or pretty significant implications here for a lack of self-control when it comes to what we say. But I think what James is saying here, it's not, not just with our mouths, it extends to other areas of communication as well. We wanna be self-controlled in what we write, in what we post on social media, in the emails that we send. Self-control with our tongues is hardest when someone first strikes at us. It's when that coworker at work makes a negative comment as we walk by them in the hallway. There's something under their breath just to get under our skin. It's when our spouse makes that specific dig at us that they know is just gonna get to us. In that moment, how will we respond? Our blood will be boiling We'll have that snarky comment ready to fire back. But what will we do? My prayer is that we will take a deep breath. We will pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Lord, help me to show self-control here. Maybe we'll think about a passage of Scripture like Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When we show self-control with our tongues, we're bringing glory to God through our obedience. Self-control is also key when it comes to our bodies. And I'm thinking specifically about self-control of a sexual nature here. This is probably one of the more controversial areas to talk about self-control 
because it's an area of our lives where um, the ethos of our culture, it tells us that we can do whatever we wanna do. No need for self-control in this area. If something feels right, then just go do it. Don't feel like you have to control that emotion and those feelings, that passion that you're feeling towards another person. As long as both parties are okay, just go ahead and act on what you're feeling. People say that self-control when it comes to our, our sexuality is puritanical, it's overly moralistic, it's unnecessary. Friends, the Bible says otherwise. Jesus says otherwise. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In showing self-control of a sexual nature, we don't ignore the feelings and the emotions that we feel. It isn't about suppressing what you feel. Instead, it's remembering that God has, has given these feelings and these desires to be enjoyed in a specific context. There's a specific context where this kind of intimacy is to be enjoyed, and that's in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I'm sure that self-control in this area, it probably makes absolutely no sense to you. Maybe you've even been rolling your eyes as I've been talking about this. That's so unnecessary. That's so old school. I just, I, I don't need to hear that. People don't think like that anymore. That might be where you're at. But I also know there are people in this room who have lived and experienced the pitfall of sexual sin. They felt the spiritual deadness that it brings. They felt the brokenness and the despair that comes from sexual sin. When we sin sexually, we're sinning against our own bodies. I just want you to know that if you're, you're here today and you are feeling the shackles of sexual sin, there's healing that's available for you. Jesus redeems sexual sinners. Just ask the woman at the well. Ask the woman who was caught in the adultery. Listen to the testimony of so many people in this room. Jesus brings healing to sexual sin. As followers of Jesus, we pray and ask for help and self-control in this area because our bodies belong to God. And again, we want to bring him honor and glory. Next, I want us to think about self-control when we're tempted with division. Self-control when we're tempted with, with division. And really, I'm thinking about division within the church. This is something that I personally have been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, just reading Jesus' prayer in John 17, you see how much the unity of God's people matters to Christ. I mean, Jesus in his, his prayer, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I'm not gonna unpack that statement, but the one thing I do know, the one thing that's clear from, if you read John 17 and even that one verse there, unnecessary division is not a good thing. We should be slow to divide from other professing Christians. We should be slow to divide from brothers and sisters in our local church. Disagreement does not necessarily have to lead to division. Sometimes division is necessary, but it shouldn't be our first move. 
We need self-control here. We need to pray for self-control when our first impulse is to break fellowship with another Christian or to break fellowship with a group of Christians. Lord, I'm, I'm angry with this brother or sister. Lord, I'm so saddened by what they did to me. I'm hurt, I'm upset. But Lord, give me self-control. Give me wisdom in how to react. Let me not be a slave to what I'm feeling in the moment, Lord, but really help me to understand from you what needs to be done. We need to pray that division in our local church, division with other believers, that that really would be our last option and not our first impulse. Right at the end of verse 23 of Galatians 5, right after Paul lists self-control as an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, he ends, he ends that description that he gives us with an important statement. It's here that Paul writes, against such things, there is no law. Now, why, why would Paul do this here? Why would he place this right at the end of the fruit of the Spirit? There's, there's a lot that we could say here, but I'm gonna try to lay this out for you in just a couple of sentences. The law that Paul is talking about here, it is the Mosaic law. And throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has been showing the Galatians, he's been telling them that the law does not bring freedom to the human heart. No one can be made right by keeping the law. It's very clear as you read through Galatians, Paul lays that out. Keeping the law doesn't make us right, it does not justify us before God. The law exposes our sin, it helps to restrain our sin, it points us to Christ. The law is good in that way, but the law does not save us. In many ways, the law exists to restrain sin. It restrains sin, but it does not free us from sin. Here's what I think Paul's getting at when he says, against such things there is no law. I think that Paul wants the believers in Galatia, and he wants us today to know that when it comes to manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit, when it comes to us living these out in our life, there is absolutely nothing that needs to be restrained. There's nothing that needs to be held back. The fruit of the Spirit being lived out in our lives, it belongs in a totally separate category from the law. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that. The law is not against those who walk by the Spirit. The law is not against those who walk by the Spirit. And moreover, and this is, this is key for us to, to hear, submission to the Spirit is what matters, not fulfilling the law. Submission to the Spirit so that the fruit can be produced in our life, that is what matters, not trying to rigorously follow the law. Well, church, there's some big questions that all of us need to ask this morning. One of them is, will we be people who submit to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as individuals and as a church? Will we be that kind of place? Will we allow him to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Will we let him do that in us? Maybe the bigger question for us all is what are we going to do when we fail? What are we going to do when we fail to live out the fruit of the Spirit? 
Because if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 minutes, you know we are going to fail in this. You know what I hope we do when we fail? When we come up short in all these, way, in all these areas, because we certainly will. I hope that we will pray and we'll worship. We'll pray and ask for the Spirit's help and we will worship with every part of us thanking God that Jesus perfectly lived out the fruit of the Spirit for us. Friends, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christianity is that Jesus did it for us. That's good news. That's gospel. If we get to the end of our study here in the fruit of the Spirit and think this is just a bunch of stuff we need to go do, then we have totally missed the point. We should want to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We should want this, but not out of duty, out of delight. We don't have to live this stuff perfectly out. We can't live it out perfectly. But Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. His righteousness is our righteousness. Praise God for that. That is worth an amen this morning. That is incredible news. Now we obey him, we follow him, we're led by the Spirit, not to earn his favor, but simply because we love him. As we come to take communion this morning, let's come with thankful and worshipful hearts. No matter what you're going through this morning, and I know there's some, some heavy hearts, there's some heavy feelings that people are are going through, that they're feeling. Oh, church, we can come with thankful and worshipful hearts for what Jesus has done. Jesus has freed us from our sin. He's given us the power through his Holy Spirit to live this life for him. Even when we fail, we can come and worship him. How sweet it is that union that we have with Christ. He won't cast us aside. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus is coming to make all things right. Things are not all right in this world today, but Jesus is coming to make things right. When we take communion, we remember all that Christ has done for us. We remember that he's with us here now, even in our, our suffering, even in our difficulties. We remember he's here with us now through the presence of his spirit. We remember that he's coming back for all of us who are in Christ. He hasn't abandoned us. Let's remember that as we take communion. If you're not a Christian, uh, I want you to know that we, we are honored that you're here with us. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that you know, simply to be nice. We really are honored that you would be here and, uh, and join us for worship. Um, this communion meal that we're getting ready to take, uh, this meal is not for you, but that doesn't mean that this time cannot be useful for you. Maybe think about some of the things that you've heard today. Maybe you want to spend a few minutes just, just praying. Maybe you want to ask God if he's real. I encourage you not to waste this time. So communion will be served at four stations throughout the sanctuary here, two at the front, and two at the back. And the band is gonna come up here and, uh, or Evan is gonna come up here and, and lead us uh, in worship as we continue to worship the Lord. 
And when you feel led, I invite you to just make your way forward and to receive communion. So I'm gonna pray and then we will continue in our worship. Father, my prayer is that as we get to the end of this series on the fruit of the Spirit, that people won't feel like boulders have been stacked on their back. These are just a bunch of things I need to go do and work hard at. God, I pray that we'll be challenged that because we do have an active role in this. But God, I, feel that it, I pray that it won't feel like a weight for people. God, I pray that your spirit would empower us, that your spirit would dwell in us individually and as, our, as a, a, a corporate body here, that your spirit would be, be with us to help us live out the fruit of the spirit. God, we wanna be people who, who demonstrate these, these characteristics to the world. We wanna be people who honor you. We wanna be people who glorify you. So God, I pray that you would help us to do that. God, I pray that your glory would be what matters. And that would be why we want to live this out. Not so that other Christians can pat us on the back. Not so our pride can be inflated. But so that you would be honored. Father, I pray you be with us this week as we seek you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.